This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Darshan Johan. Ethno-nationalism, religious nationalism, neo-fascism and other forms of right-wing and ultra-conservative populist movements are on the rise in Malaysia and across the globe. From the growing popularity of PAS and Perikatan National in Malaysia, Narendra Modi and his Hindu nationalist project in India, to strongman figures like Donald Trump, or even evangelical Christians of the Republican Party in the US, and the anti-immigration Marine Le Pen in France. The list goes on and on. This has led to massive polarisation across ethnic, religious and cultural lines. While each country and region has its own unique historical and sociopolitical context, one can't help but wonder what are the parallels that can be drawn, why are we polarised and could class struggle be a remedy? Joining me on the show to discuss this is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome back to the show, Peter. It's been a while. Thank you, Dashan. Good to be here. Now, would you agree, Peter, that there is a rise of ethno-religious and other forms of conservative or right-wing populism across the globe and that the world is becoming increasingly polarised? Yeah, I think that's a fair approximation. I mean, uh, by across the globe, if you mean in different parts of the world, not necessarily every part of the world, but in many parts of the world, uh, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. The examples you mentioned are... Uh, uh, good examples of this phenomenon. You know, you could you could add to that list in Brazil, Germany, etc. Um, not everywhere, but yeah, it definitely does seem to be a, a trend in evidence in various different parts all over the planet. What are some of the root causes of this? Right, this this phenomenon that we are witnessing, the rise of ethno-religious populism, ultra-conservative backlash. Well, as a, a political psychologist, the first thing I look for is like a, a the psychological aspect of the problem, which of course is not everything, but it's a it's a it's a portion of it. And one of the most basic uh, aspects of of social psychology research is intergroup bias. So you you just have this unconscious bias operating at all times that makes us view people in our in groups, whatever group we're a member of, more favorably. And then in situations of perceived competition for scarce resources then that it also makes us look at members of outgroups more negatively. So I, I see this as having historical parallels. Uh, roughly a, a hundred years ago, uh, this was really well described by Karl Polanyi in his book, The Great Transformation, uh, how massive widespread economic suffering created fertile soil for uh, right-wing political movements in Europe uh, to arise by taking advantage of people's dissatisfaction, their pain, uh, and then offering them a, a radical break from the, the status quo. So I can't help but but see both of these kind of phenomena uh, reasserting themselves around the world today in the rise of, of right-wing populism. Uh, both the economic suffering, the uh, high levels of economic inequality, uh, combined with intergroup bias, where you're in a situation of perceived competition over scarce resources, you know, that creates a lot of suffering. And then you have these, these right-wing movements uh, offering a radical break from the status quo in a direction where they, they promise people that they're going to improve their lives. 
you you bring up something interesting, which is how people's um, insecurities um, are being taken advantage of. How how does conservative populism contribute to polarization? Well, I think it's it's primarily a matter of you know you start from the the fertile soil. If you have massive inequality, if you have a lot of people suffering economically, they they have to uh, stress, worry constantly. They're concerned about having a, a place to live. Uh, money to buy food, et cetera. That's the kind of fertile soil for political leaders who explain why uh, you're suffering and then are, they're offering some sort of solution to that suffering. So I think that's that's really the, the, the key dynamic. And then once you have that fertile soil and you have uh, right-wing populists offering this explanation, and of course it, it varies from country to country, in, you know, you give the example of France and the U.S., there the, the explanation is oftentimes you have all this uncontrolled immigration and the immigrants are taking your jobs. Uh, but in countries like uh, Brazil or India, it's not so much about immigration. Immigration really isn't uh, the issue. It's it's different there. It's, uh, you know, these undeserving uh, welfare leeches that are, are draining uh, the public wealth or uh, it's the 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 the, the Muslims uh, uh, historically uh, making us weak or, or dominating the the Hindu majority, and then uh, because we were weak, the British took over, and so we need to right this wrong. But in in all of these situations, it's a it's a compelling narrative for people that uh, don't have another explanation for first why they're suffering, and second how to end the suffering. And the right wing populists offer an explanation of both. And if you don't have a, a competing explanation that is as widespread and as easily available, you can see why the right-wing populist message gets a lot of adherence. I want to hone in even deeper into this idea of economic inequality and, and a fertile ground for right-wing populists to take advantage. Because a lot of people may not look at it this way, right? A lot of people look at the world through racial and religious lens but what you're saying is this happens or the root cause of this starts by this economic inequality. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, the, the basics of this massive amount of research that's been done on intergroup bias finds that in-group bias is generally the, the predominant version of intergroup bias, that you, you feel more positively towards your in-groups, Right. But it's only in situations of perceived competition where outgroup bias can can come in. So the what I'm what I think is at the, the the root of this is you do have the situation of perceived competition over scarce resources. Now that can be I think very uh, strongly and effectively challenged by uh, uh, economists outside of the neoclassical mainstream who argue that it's not really a, a, a competition over scarce resources. It's much more a, a matter of you know, how we produce and distribute uh, the resources and the products that we do have. But leaving that aside, if you're, you're, you're suffering and you see other people that are doing extremely well, then that perceived situation of competition over scarce resources is very much in people's minds. But just seeing that isn't enough to create you know, ideas about why that's the case or create ideas about what, what the solutions are. And that's what I mean by that, that fertile soil for explanations, narratives, arguments that center things like uh, race, ethnicity, identity, religion, et cetera, 
uh, as you know, the, the, the reason for your suffering, that the other group, the other religious group, the other ethnic group is the one that is taking advantage of you. And if you just take power away from that other group, then your group will do better. So that's what I mean by the, the, the fertile soil for these kinds of ideas. Now, let's look at the past four decades, right? Because it seems like things are slowly becoming bad to worse in this context. Did the past four decades of neoliberal capitalism contribute to the rise of polarization? Sure. So starting with the, the definition, uh, neoliberal, neoliberalism as, a, as an ideology was developed in the 1920s and 1930s as a response to the utter failure of liberal economics. Uh, liberalism as an economic ideology had been implemented to a large extent. It had failed massively. Uh, and so the, the people who really believed in liberal economics realized that they needed to completely revamp their way of thinking about the world so that it would actually succeed. Uh, in the 1930s, they recognized that no nobody with a brain really <laughs> believed in this anymore. And so they were extremely concerned about this. So they they changed the way that they looked at the at the economy from one from a view in which uh, the, the state needs to be tiny. The market kind of just creates itself. You need to let the market shape itself uh, to one in which they they acknowledge that governments create markets in the first place. It's the legal structure that governments provide. Uh, from writing the laws to enforcing them to having the, the courts to settle contract disputes, et cetera. It's the government that creates markets. So they, they accepted that uh, government does have a, a larger role to play in the, the creation and the maintenance of, of markets. But they carried uh, or retained a lot of the content of the original liberal economic ideology, uh, so ideas like, you know, uh, lower tax rates, uh, the, the rich shouldn't be taxed so much because they're the source of investment uh, that's productive. If government tries to take over that function, it's it's just by definition going to fail because of their beliefs about uh, what is efficient and what is inefficient. Um, and so in, you know, that, that ideology kind of uh, morphed and evolved a bit over the, the 20th century. By the time it was, it was starting to be implemented in government policies in the late 1970s and really uh, picking up steam in the 1980s, it was very, very similar to uh, old school economic liberalism. Um, but it was still very much accepting of a, of a much larger government and a much greater government role in sustaining markets. Now, what are the, the economic effects that we've seen? Well, if you look at uh, global economic growth rates during the, the so-called golden age of capitalism from the 1950s, basically after the war until the 1970s, and you compare them with global growth rates during the neoliberal era starting late 70s up until today, uh, you see they're, they're, they're massively worse. The neoliberal era growth rates are much worse, and we've seen uh, massive rises in inequality around the world. So, you know, that's the, the effect, and that's what I mean by the, the fertile soil. It's the, the economic policies, uh, particularly during the neoliberal era, that have created that fertile soil of high inequality, high immiseration, and especially relative immiseration. It's not just a matter of, you know, how well you're doing objectively. It matters a lot to humans, the way our brains are set up. Uh, the way our brains evolve to look at other people and see, wow, I'm doing much worse than that person who's a business owner or what have you. Peter, I want to understand that further. Um, 
how does the erosion of, let's say, social safety nets, because that's one of the things like you mentioned earlier, you know, when we look at the Thatchers, the Reagans, um, even here, the, the Mahades and, and so on and so forth, um, they give tremendous power to private private companies. The, the, the safety nets, the welfare programs of the government started to shrink, become less and less. Um, you know, from a healthcare perspective, now everybody needs to get private insurance and, and so on and so forth. How do all these things lead us to the emergence of ethno-religious populism? That's a great question. I mean, so I mentioned some of the core attributes of neoliberal economic ideology, uh, but you mentioned some others. Uh, privatization, the idea that when government tries to provide some sort of, of service the public needs, it's just by definition, by belief, uh, less efficient than the private sector. Therefore, the policy uh, recommendation is to sell off all publicly owned enterprises in healthcare, in, in everything, even in social security, like uh, social safety net programs, like a pension, instead of it being provided by the state, it should be provided by uh, individual investment accounts in the stock market, for instance. So you, if, you, if you take all of the, the, the policies that are under that neoliberal ideological umbrella, and you look at their effects, the effect has very clearly been around the world have been to uh, make poor people's lives more difficult, to put it very, very bluntly and simply. If you take away the, the kinds of services that the government would provide uh, at cost or, or even free to people, and you make them now only attainable if you have money to purchase them, that's putting additional stressors on people and really brutal stressors if you think about healthcare. Uh, where you you have to to scrounge up money you don't have to save your life or to save someone else's life, these are all contributing factors that create this this fertile soil for uh, a radical departure from the norm, uh, a, a, a revolutionary uh, a move away from the status quo, and you have uh, proposals in that sort of direction coming from the the right and the left. But another aspect of neoliberalism, again, uh, the belief is that the private sector does everything better than the public sector. So when you when you apply that to the realm of the media, you get commercialized media systems where all media outlets in the neoliberal ideal are not funded publicly. They're not funded by the government. They're not regulated so that they they are required to present multiple different competing ideolo ideological perspectives and have a lot of debates. Instead, you just have the rule of the market, and that then creates incentives for individual outlets to play to their audience. To If they know that their audience already has a certain set of beliefs, then they provide them content that reinforces those beliefs. And if they find that uh, ethno-nationalist or even racial appeals uh, or religious appeals are popular and they attract a, a, an audience, well, then that they're going to focus more on that and spread more of that uh, uh, those beliefs. Uh, whereas if you have uh, a leftist explanation, a, a leftist policy response that's also revolutionary, it's also a, a radical break from the status quo, uh, unless you already have somehow through organizing uh, many people who, who already have a basic grasp of it and therefore they want to learn more, if you don't have that, then the commercialized media system is not going to present it. So all of these, these contributing factors to this fertile soil for, for right-wing populism uh, you can you can look you can see how they're related to neoliberal economic ideology and the way that it has been implemented in policy. 
On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We continue this discussion after the break on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan, and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're talking about the rise of ultra-conservative populism across the globe, um, in many parts of the globe, and the need for strong class solidarity. So, Peter, um, how might class-based solidarity counteract the effects of racial and religion, uh, religious polarization? Yeah, or even something like ethno-nationalism. Here's where maybe that that uh, metaphor of fertile soil kind of breaks down. Because if you have fertile soil, you should be able to grow just about anything in it, <laughs> right? But I, I guess what I'm trying to 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 find a, a proper analogy for is a a kind of soil in which it's great for certain kinds of plants, but other plants simply can't grow. So if you have a situation where masses of people are are really struggling, they can see. Very well-off people doing incredibly well have have lots of power, uh, autonomy in their lives, and they feel trapped. Well, you can have right-wing populist uh, ideas grow because right-wing populism is offering a a strong critique of the status quo and offering a radical break from it that is promised to benefit people's lives. So, when I say fertile soil, I mean it's it's soil that's fertile for that kind of idea. Now, the left also has a a. a a set of ideas that's similar to right-wing populism in very limited ways, but important ways. And those ways are uh, a strong critique of the present system and uh, uh, policies that promise to actually improve the, the lives of the, the masses of people, right? So in that uh, situation, I think if you, if you have this uh, environment in which right-wing populist ideas are advantaged because you have so many people struggling, then the only counterweight to that would be ideas that, if implemented, would benefit people's uh, lives, but which don't involve any sort of hatred for uh, different religious or ethnic groups, but rather uh, recenter people's uh, understanding or, or give people the, the understanding in the first place that the reason why they're suffering is an economic system in which wealth tends to concentrate more and more, and poverty tends to uh, just get more dire. Uh, uh, people's lives become more and more uh, stressful. Uh, they, they find it harder to, to carry on a decent life, et cetera. So if you're in that situation where the, the masses of people are, are uh, suffering sufficiently that right-wing populist ideas are attractive to them, then it seems to me that the only uh, counterweight to that is a set of ideas that can do just as well given those conditions, but uh, would implement if they were, you know, actually implemented. They would uh, introduce policies that would change the economic system such that people with uh, great wealth and power right now would lose some of that wealth and power in order that uh, the the masses of people's lives could be improved. You, you know, earlier you, you brought up something which I find very um, interesting, very important, that um, you talked about how there needs to be a counter-program, a program focused on, um, you know, improving people's material lives, but 
doesn't throw people, marginalized groups, or doesn't other other people, doesn't throw marginalized groups under the bus. Because I, I feel like in a lot of countries, in a lot of situations, what the centrist government sometimes tends to do if they get into power is they might focus on, on economic issues um, and, and things like that. They might have certain economic programs, but in the in the name of, of sort of... Um, you know, managing temperatures, as they call it, or maneuvering real politics. What they tend to do is repeat the conservative, ultra-conservative talking points, right? Um, throwing um, sexual minorities under the bus, maybe othering certain people. What is the impact when so-called uh, centrist governments do that? Well, I mean, I guess we're, we're seeing a test case of that with the, the uh, center-right that has captured the Labour Party in the UK. Uh, apparently, that's exactly what they're doing. Um, but I mean, I would just go back to Polanyi and the, the Great Transformation. I mean, he, he basically points out that the, the conditions that allowed the fascists to gain so much popular support and power uh, were, you know, A, the economic suffering of, of masses of people, but B, the fact, and this is really important and under-examined, uh, I think, is the fact that the kind of liberal centrist uh, alternatives were unwilling to make a break from their economic ideology and implement policies that would, uh, you know, again, reduce the wealth and power of those with a lot of wealth and power already in order to make the, the lives of the majority better. So when you have that that situation and you don't have a, an actual left alternative, uh, that is the, the the kind of situation that allowed uh, far right movements to to rise in the past. And I viewed the Great Transformation as a as a very prophetic book, uh, even though it was focused on you know uh, over a, a century, century and a half ago, what was going on in in Europe. I think its basic message, its basic analysis is still applicable today. I'm wondering if a lot of this, what we are seeing across the world today, has a lot to do in part with how many mainstream, um, quote-unquote, progressive alternatives, progressive parties around the world, have over the past four decades been sort of taken a technocratic approach to running a government. Um, they re represent the interests of the professional and managerial class of people rather than being this, this vanguard of marginalized communities demanding the expansion of the common good and the redistribution of wealth to the common folk. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's precisely the, the issue. If you're not uh, willing might not be the right word. If, if, if in your belief system, you really just cannot provide decent goods and services to the, the masses of people because your economic belief system says that uh, anything outside of the market is going to be inefficient, it's going to destroy wealth creation. If that's what you believe, then you really, you're, you're constrained, you're hamstrung, your, your hands are tied just because of, of what you believe to be possible. So you can't offer that, not you know, because in the actual real world, you couldn't do it. But in your mind, you believe that uh, such policies would have negative effects. Then, yeah, you're absolutely constrained. I, I know this this question I'm about to ask could be an entire podcast in and of itself. You could probably be 10 podcasts diving into different countries and whatnot. But if I, but broadly speaking, what has become of the global left, especially over the past four decades? Wow, that is a big question. But Broadly speaking, I mean, 
you've got massive successes in some parts of the world, uh, you know, from the perspective of a, of a left defined as uh, primarily anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist. Right. You have, you know, revolution in China is enormous. You've got such a, a large percentage of the, the world's population there. And they were able to defeat a invading imperial power, uh, kind of distance themselves or, or, or escape from uh, the imposition of a, a global capitalist economic system uh, that would have kept them uh, very underdeveloped until today had they not uh, overthrown it. So you have, you know, examples like that uh, in the underdeveloped parts of the world. But then in the rich parts of the world, you have a much less uh, rosy story. You know, like if, if you go back to the uh, to the 1800s and and uh, uh, Marx and Engels writing about what they believe the, the future to hold, you know, the whole idea was that the most advanced countries would have their revolutions first. And then that's extremely important because all of the most advanced technology is in those countries. And it's not going to be shared with the rest of the world under a, a capitalist system that you give away your advantage to make more profit. It's just not going to happen structurally. Um, and so if you look at it from that perspective, then the what's happened to the left over the past you know, century, at least in the rich countries, is very disheartening. You, you just have a, a, a record of failure and that record of failure in the rich countries has has had extremely negative impacts on the rest of the world, not just, you know, directly because they're not getting that free technology transfer, you know, sending engineers to to build factories and educate uh, people to become engineers in developing parts of the world. But also the, the very uh, uh, liberal use of violence to crush any sort of movement that attempted to uh, use the country's own resources for its own development. Uh, and then you have even, you know, an, another layer on top of that on the, the kind of intellectual uh, uh, level, you have in the, the rich countries, again, a move away from political economy, basically, a, a move away from looking at the most potent form of power that exists in the world. And instead, this diversion to looking at a much less potent form of power, which is linguistic power, uh, the power of words that we use and the, the, the way that we conceptualize things, which, you know, there, there's something to it. But the fact that so much of the, the rich world uh, left in the, in the intellectual sphere has gone down that road and completely uh, jettisoned its previous commitment to the most potent form of power in the world, which is political <laughs> economic, uh, that's not very heartening. Would you say that in politics, right, there is always some form of quote-unquote enemy of sorts, right? And right now the problem is that people are not looking at the big picture, the political economy and understanding who the real enemy is. If you're a regular person, right? If you're a regular person, because right now, if you're a particular skin color, you think your enemy is a person of a different skin color or a different religion or a different, you know, gender even and different nationality and so, so on and so forth. Do you think what is missing here, what people need to understand is that regardless of all your different um, identities, cultural identities and, and your gender, your race, and that the enemy um, is the perhaps top 1% or top 0.5% um, of society. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like the director of the movie Parasite said. He, he made a movie uh, uh, that he thought was unique to the Korean context, and then he showed it around the world, and he realized he had actually uh, made a movie about the global context because we're all living in the same system called capitalism. Um, yeah, exactly as you said, like it, political economic power, the, the, the power that you, you have from owning uh, important productive assets in the economy is... It doesn't discriminate on the basis of melanin in the skin or or religious beliefs. <laughs> the, there are people of of all uh, hues and beliefs who are members of the the ruling class, to put it very uh, crudely. But those people who who enjoy disproportionate political economic power to their their numbers, right? So, in that situation, you know, you you. In order for people to recognize that the problems that they experience on a in a material sense, on a material level, are directly the result of the way that we organize ourselves economically, if people don't have that understanding, then you know they're they're very susceptible to other uh, ways of looking at you know what the the source of their problems are and what the solutions therefore are. Um, and so, yeah, I think if if people were uh, educated, informed about the structure of the global economic system, then they would see their material problems as coming from a, a very different source than that which the right wing populists would say. You know, the, th- the thing is, right, when we talk about class-based politics as as an approach to or a remedy for racial, religious um, polarization, um, critics may argue that you know, this can be seen as an oversimplification of complex issues related to identity and culture. So how can a balance be struck between addressing class disparities, um, which is important, which is perhaps the most important thing, but also respecting um, and and addressing issues related to the nuances of race, religion, um, nationality, so on and so forth? First of all, race is such a, a an absurd category that we still have today. It's this completely pseudoscientific uh, category, but it's useful to look at its history. It, it emerges out of economic power relations. It emerges out of the the need to explain horribly inhuman treatment of enslaved people uh, as justified because they're a member of a different race, and race is so different, right? So if the very concept of, of race that then becomes uh, manifest in racial discrimination and, and hatred and bigotry emerges from economic power relations. Uh, I think that if economic power relations were flattened more, so there was greater economic uh, equality, not just in terms of like how much money people have in their pockets, although that's a, a big part of it, but also more deeply in terms of who has a voice, who has power in making economic decisions. Is a factory going to to close down and move off to uh, another location with uh, more exploitable workers, or is it going to stay? Uh, Who gets to decide, you know, how many hours people work, uh, uh, when they get breaks, like that that form of power as well, not just power measurable in in dollar terms. If you have a a society where more people are, are equal and can relate to each other in their economic lives more easily, uh, I don't see how how racial uh, divides remain salient. 
I think they 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 have the concept of race has a lot of staying power because it it describes a kind of oppression that is exerted mostly through political economic power. And then when it comes to, you know, even if you had a, a, a an economic structure that is more uh, ideal in terms of, of equality of power and opportunity, right? Even if you had that, uh, old ideas, you know, they don't die off immediately. If people are, are raised with these absurd beliefs about the inherent supremacy of one group versus another, uh, that idea isn't probably not going to completely disappear just as a result of economic uh, equality. But then you can devise programs, you can devise policies to eliminate that further in educational policy. What you teach people about, you know, I, I can't imagine anyone learning the actual history of the concept of, of race and not coming away from that lesson with an understanding that it's just complete pseudoscientific bunk. You know, also, it's it's a matter of like how communities are, are designed. Are they integrated? Are you are you uh, friends and neighbors with people who don't look like you, who, who don't have the same religion as you? If you're you're very integrated and your uh, your life is not full of these these profound economic stressors that that create or, or rather uh, uh, amplify outgroup bias uh, because you're in the situation of, of, of perceived uh, competition for scarce resources, then I think all of, you know, the combination of, of these different factors would do a lot to reducing the kind of animosity that we see uh, arising from religious, ethnic differences. Do you think that oftentimes there is a gap, right? In in what I'm saying is like you brought up, uh, you know, this idea of um, people living together, you know, programs in schools. Oftentimes, you know, there is a lack of class analysis when it comes to this, right? So people will say, um, you know, if you are, integration will solve racism, you know, just like as a blanket statement. But if you have a diverse society where, uh, you know, 90% of a particular race are staying in private condominiums um, or gated communities, and just 100 meters before that, um, 90% of a particular community is staying in worn out public housing that is, you know, going to looks like it's rotting away. That's just going to increase the racial tension, right? So ultimately, even when it comes to integration, social programs, it needs to be anchored by a particular class struggle. The class struggle, um, the, the, the getting rid of the inequalities need to come first. Yeah, I mean, you can see the the opposite of that approach in the U.S. now, with with uh, this idea that the way to eliminate racism is to to uh, spread racial sensitivity training or or bias reduction training, and that's it. As if it's just a purely ideational problem. It's just the ideas in people's heads, or even worse, when people say, "Oh, it's it's genetic. It's just part of human nature," which you know, has a, a, a grain of truth, but it's distorted beyond recognition. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just that. The, the reason for the focus on uh, the kind of class solution, the, the uh, reducing these massive disparities of, of economic power and autonomy, uh, that is absolutely key. You can do as much anti-bias training or anti-racist training as you want, but if you're living in the situation that you just described, where you can just see in your, your daily life that you and people that look like you are living in these horrible conditions and another group that doesn't look like you, which you've been taught to believe is a different quote unquote race or, or just a different religion, if they're all doing well, then you know the effectiveness of that anti-bias training is, is quite dubious, right? 
so yeah, I, I think it has to have that that grounding in the 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 daily lived experience that you go through life with. If you if you go through life seeing uh, people of of different ethnic and religious backgrounds. Uh, living with you, working side by side, not having any sort of massive disparity in, in power and autonomy, uh, then that, in addition to the, the kind of educational component, I think that is going to be uh, actually effective as opposed to the, the kind of neoliberal, it's all about the bias training, we don't have to do anything about the economic or power structure, and it'll kind of solve itself. Peter, before we wrap this conversation up, to round it all up, what would you say is the importance of class struggle when it comes to the context we're talking about? It goes back to the uh, bit of imperialist wisdom, uh, divide and conquer. Uh, if, if you're a smaller number of people and you're trying to conquer a much larger group of people, you really can't do it if they're united. You, you have to find some sort of dividing line so that you can get some uh, of those people to fight with you or, or on your behalf. Uh, that's how you you rule. You have to divide and conquer. And I think in, in the, the modern context, the modern world, that takes the form of, whether it's witting or unwitting, it takes the form of uh, ethnic divides or, or religious divides, identity divides. Uh, the, I think the promise of, you know, you can call it class struggle, you can call it just real world economic analysis, where you've got some people who have the power to make important, impactful economic decisions that can completely change people's lives. But it's only a very small number of people and a very large number of people basically have to accept whatever decision uh, that small group of people make. And they, you know, it's like the, the Thucydides line, uh, the, the powerful do as they will and the weak suffer as they must. If, <laughs> if you don't tackle that problem, uh, I don't see how, you know, you, you make any uh, significant progress. Uh, the, the, the identity or cultural divides are always going to be, they're very easy to, to foment. They're, they're simple explanations. So they're going to have that advantage. Uh, if you don't have that that uh, real world economic analysis explaining to people how the system works and how they can unite in order to make the system reform the system so that it works better for them, then you know I, I don't see much uh, a very soon end to ethnic and religious conflict. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Dashran. Good talking with you. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.